Hi, everyone. I'm Mackie Craven, a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in business software companies at the expansion stage and work closely with their teams to help them build large and enduring businesses. We're wrapping up this season this week, but not to worry. We'll be back in January for more insights from some of your favorite companies powered by product-led growth. Now, on with the show. On this episode of Build, I caught up with Tope Awatana, founder and CEO of Calendly. He shares their product strategy from the early days, their transition to a paid product, and what it took to convince him that Calendly was worth taking an entrepreneurial risk on. He also shares his perspective on VC funding and how it's changed over time. So thank you so much for joining us here on Build. You know, for those that actually aren't familiar with Calendly, could you just walk through a little bit on what the company and product are to get us kicked off? Yes, for those who are not familiar, Calendly is the simplest way to schedule meetings with people outside your company. We've all been in those email exchanges where you're trading emails back and forth, trying to find a time to meet. You propose Thursday and Friday, they come back, they propose Tuesday. Calendly makes all of that at the end of the past. Instead of all those back and forth emails, what you do is you share your Calendly link, the recipient receives it, they click it, they see your availability, they grab a time that works for them. That's the most visible part of how we help our users. But behind the scenes, we're actually working to automate a bunch of tasks and processes that will make the meeting successful. Things like updating business applications. It could be your CRM. It could be your marketing automation platform. It could be your applicant tracking system. We're also doing things like setting up Zoom links. We're sending out reminders and a whole host of other tasks and processes. The net result of all of this is that take the case of salespeople, they sell a lot more because fewer of their customers drop off in the scheduling process. Customer success teams onboard more. Again, fewer of them drop off in the scheduling process. And also with the time savings that we provide these groups, they're able to serve more customers. And then in the case of a freelancer or an executive where they're scheduling a meeting assistant for free or less than $15 a month. Finally, the company has been around for six years now. We serve about 5 million people on a monthly basis. Our customers range from individuals to teams to large enterprises. And uh, finally, we are based out of Atlanta, where we have a team of 100 and something strong. That's incredible. And one of the things you were talking about there is not just the idea of scheduling meetings, but you know, taking care of other tasks, right, and other processes that are typically associated when people meet or, or communicate through another media. How did that develop as part of the product or part of the company? Yes, when I first started Calendly, I was a one-person team, and I was really anxious to get feedback from our users about how the product was working for them. So I experimented with a number of different ways. What I ended up finding that was the most effective way to get this feedback was a one-question survey that was sent out 24 hours after they signed up. A lot of those survey responses turned into conversations. And during those conversations, I learned a ton. I would ask, do you like the product and you'll continue to use it? Or do you not like the product and what would you need to see in it to actually use it? When I spoke to the first group, the successful users, I learned a lot about the different ways in which they were using the product. But I also learned that they had implemented all these little hacks behind the scenes to make the product work even more effectively for them. And so our product strategy for a very long time was just implementing those hacks into the product, right? So that's what took us to integrating with Salesforce, to integrating with HubSpot, to you know round-robin meetings where you're pulling the availability of multiple team members, and so on and so forth. So 
in short, our product strategy in the early days was just to follow the hacks and they've yielded a lot of uh, awesome improvements for our users. And fast forward to today, we have a much more sophisticated and methodical way for figuring out those things. For example, we now have a head of research that uses the jobs to be done framework among a host of other tools and frameworks to really figure out what are the larger goals that our users are trying to solve and what's our role in helping them get there. It's a really interesting concept, this idea of jobs to be done and you know following that thread over time. I'm sure there's a treasure trove of data out there. But on the other hand, there's it sounds like a deep qualitative understanding it takes to really map and know not just what they're doing and how to improve it, but what to do next. How do you balance and incorporate getting that feedback with such an expansive user base? I would say that's the hardest thing that we actually do as a company, because if you talk to a thousand users, you'll probably get a thousand different opinions on what the product should do next. But for us, the way we initially found out where we needed to concentrate was by introducing a paid plan. When we first launched the product six years ago, it was 100% free, and that was a blessing. It also turned out to be a curse. The blessing was that because of the low barrier to entry, lots of people signed up. So that was great, and it allowed us to get a really large sample size. The curse of that is we were not generating any revenue, and we needed to generate revenue if we were going to keep the service alive for our users. And so we started to experiment with paid plans and also experimenting with exactly what features should go in those paid plans. What we found out very quickly was for people who are scheduling internal meetings, it could be reserving conference rooms, reserving equipment. By and large, for those people, we were nice to have. No matter what features we talked about, they just could not see themselves paying for the product. On the other hand, for those people who are scheduling external meetings, so we're talking sales demos, candidate interviews, partner meetings, customer meetings, the ROI of those meetings is immense. And also it's the core thing that they do. And that was our first fork in the road. When we noticed that the people who are scheduling external meetings were very willing to pay, we decided to focus on those people. And again, that was the first fork in the road in terms of determining exactly where we wanted to focus. However, today we're using a lot more sophistication to make those decisions. We're primarily trying to forecast adoption, trying to figure out what percentage of the user base would actually adopt this and use this. And that's one of the most important things that we pay attention to. Yeah, that makes total sense. But just going back, right, you're serving users that have the same pain points that you did, right? Related directly back to kind of why, you know, and how you initially had the idea for Calendly. But it's a big difference between observing a problem, feeling a problem, and deciding to do something about it. So what for you, you know, whether it was an individual moment or sort of a general kind of philosophy and perspective, made you not just end the search when you couldn't find a great tool, but decide, as you said, to do something about it? That moment for me was when I felt like I had an unfair advantage, and that unfair advantage for me was knowledge. I felt like I just knew something about this space that nobody else did. Let me explain. When I first encountered the scheduling problem, the last thing on my mind was starting a business. The reason is I started many businesses before Calendly, and none of them did particularly well. And so when I encountered this problem, I started off by looking for reasons why I should not do this. And so that took me about six months. During those six months, what I did was I signed up for every single scheduling product on the market at the time. It was probably about 20 to 30 different products. And when I signed up for those products, I deconstructed every single thing about them. I'm talking the actual product itself, pricing, how were they supporting their customers? What were their customers saying about them? What was the support experience like? What was their go-to-market strategy? What was their target audience? I went through this entire process. And at the end of that process, I just, I felt like I knew 
this space better than anybody else. And I knew exactly what needed to, to be done in this space, not just to have a successful product, but to build a product that was much more successful than any of the other products on the market. For example, I knew that the user experience of the products on the market at the time had a major flaw. That major flaw was that they were not thinking about the user experience of both parties that participated in the meeting. They were thinking about the user experience of people who had signed up for their product, the people who were sharing the scheduling link, and they were not putting enough time thinking about what their recipient experience was like. And so the recipient experience back then sucked for most of the scheduling products on the market. And one of the things that Calendly got right was that that recipient experience was incredibly good. And so what that meant was our users had much better conversion rates when they invited people to schedule with them as opposed to when they used the legacy and scheduling products on the market. Yeah, that's what it takes. And it's incredible to see the scale and the continued growth of you know the business. And obviously, we're incredibly excited to be working with you at OpenView and, and building Calendly. And you started talking there about you know what sounds to me a little bit almost like a design principle and really thinking not just about your users, but about the interaction with your users and the experience of the other party, the other side that touches and uses Calendly. And so we'd love maybe to hear more about the design principles for the business as a whole, right? The things that you believe in and guide you as you build the company. So we have four values that we care about. And the first is we start with human. Right. So even when you're building software, ultimately that software is going to be used and consumed by human beings. And we think that you want to put the needs of those people first. So it means a very user centric design, sitting down with users and again, not just asking them about the features that they want, but understanding the context for which they want to use those features or truly understanding the work that they do and the struggles that they have in doing that job. So that's why we built our product to be incredibly easy to use because we understand that our users don't want to spend all day configuring Calendly. They truly want to get it set up as quickly as possible. And if I'm a salesperson, my ultimate goal is to make a sale, not just to schedule a meeting. And that's what we kind of think about. And earlier I mentioned how we think about the user experience. We want to make sure the experience is good for all parties that interact with the product, not just our paying customers, but the people that they use our product with. Another value that we have is focus wisely, uh, which stated differently is just ruthless prioritization. We believe that everything isn't equally important. So that's why we have a product that's easy to use and simple, but also very powerful at the same time. And what simplicity is and what usability is, is stripping out all the things that get in the way of the three or four or five most important things that you need, right? So that's another value that really guides how we build product, how we serve our customers. Another value for us is find a way, which is about creativity and uh, being resourceful. And one way that shows up is in our business model. So we have this freemium self-serve business and the product also happens to be viral. And part of what we did is for the first few years of the product, we emphasized and really invested heavily on building out the self-serve experience and making that as good as possible, as opposed to relying heavily on a sales-driven approach. And the reason we did that is we had to be resourceful and we had to be creative in how we went to market. I didn't really have the budget at the time to stand up a 10-person sales team. And I remember back in 2015, a lot of people thought that was a silly idea. So in 2015, I was working out of a place called the Atlanta Tech Village. And most of the companies there were actually going to market. They were acquiring customers through sales, right? They had inside salespeople. That's what made sense for the price point that they were selling at. But for us, with our price point, we couldn't afford that, right? And so what we did instead is we invested heavily on building out the best self-serve experience. Yet another value that we think about is strive for excellence, right? So if we're in the business of meetings, 
we want to be the best meetings platform out there. Great to hear. You know, one of the the ones that really stands out to me is actually the one you started with, which is start with human. And, you know, if somebody's listening to this and thinking about that for their business and resonates with them, you know, what can you share about either tactics that you've used or how you've implemented that principle, both in building the business and building the product that they might be able to take away and think about how to start with human for what they might be building? So most free products or most premium products, they don't provide any kind of support, right? But we do that for even our free customers. And it's not unusual, even though we advertise an SLA of three hours to paid users, it's not unusual for people to get responses back within 15 minutes. The reason we do that is because we know that when people are reaching out to us to ask a question about the product, if they don't get that question answered, it's preventing them from sending out a link, which may be preventing them from acquiring a customer, which may be preventing them from nailing that candidate they want to get. So we think the sooner that we can get back to them, the sooner they can get back to the outcome they really want, which is to land that candidate. So that's one way in which that shows up. Another way in which it shows up is I remember the early days when we built our current login experience, right? So when you go in and log into Calendly, this is getting probably technical now, but in the early days of Calendly, you could only sign up with Google Auth. But over time, we started adding more calendars. So we added Office 365, and then we want to support other ways of logging. And long story short, as we were adding more authentication options, it became burdensome to the user to really figure out how do I actually authenticate through Calendly. And we took a lot of pains to kind of come up with a creative solution in which when you try to sign in, we detect what kind of calendar provider that you're using. And so you don't have to make a decision about how you want to log in. We just make that decision intelligently for you. And so for us, it's about the maker of the software, bearing the burden of the complexity. That idea of, as you said, bearing the burden of the complexity or even taking the idea of finding the job to be done, but breaking it down into you know, maybe micro jobs or, or tasks, not just in the end user's own workflow, but in their interaction and experience and workflow with your product and with the company Calendly, as, as you just described. How do you go through the process of identifying or figuring out where best to put those resources? Because as you said in the early days, right, when it was limited resources, but you know, trying to focus on the most value for a user, how did you go through the process to find that? You know, at the time I was the product manager for the product, so I was making the product decisions. I was also <laughs> heavily involved in uh, doing a lot of support tickets. I was also getting on the phone with customers. You know, when it was easy to say, you just provide email support. What I ended up doing by really getting this 360 degree view of the customer experience from making product decisions to doing support tickets, to doing sales calls, to sending out surveys. 24 hours after somebody signed up, I would ask them, what are your initial impressions of Calendly 24 hours in? Are you liking it? And will you continue using it? What I found out a lot of times by sending out that survey is that a lot of the features people request were actually already in the product. They just didn't really know how to find them. It gave us a clear roadmap for what to do on the product side, which was to improve usability. I say that to say, like in the early days, we didn't have all of those different resources. You know, it was a skeleton crew. But by having that 360-degree view of the customer, by doing all those different things, I kind of did it in an ad hoc fashion. And over time, as we grew and as we scaled, you know, as we had a bigger team, which allowed me to step back and really evaluate what I was actually doing, I should add that also my background in enterprise software sales also really helped me with that because a lot of what I was doing with those Fortune 500 companies I was selling to is effectively kind of being a consultant to them. And that helped a lot in the early days of Calendly. 
Yeah, it makes sense. And as you pointed out, right, in the early days, you start off as the founder wearing all of the hats. And then over time, you get to, you know, build a team around you to focus on, you know, specific things. But what you raised there of users requesting features or being interested in features that are already in the product, but they may not be aware of, is also, I think, a common problem. And, you know, I've heard it's an incredibly frustrating problem. How did you approach sort of the mechanism to do that, given, you know, kind of given the value of focusing wisely? Was it in removing things that might have blocked their way? Is it through sort of content or other guidance in a workflow in the product? How did you think about revealing that and communicating the existence of those things to your users in a way that was natural and scalable? Yeah, so initially it was mostly through content. The easiest thing to change is initially content, right? So changing content on your marketing website, changing content in your knowledge base is 10 times easier and 10 times faster than making changes within the product. So that's initially where I started. Over time, it informed a lot of product decisions. We noticed that when people log into Calendly, what they're mostly looking to do is edit the rules that govern their availability. And what we did this year is when we noticed that that's the number one thing people do when they log into the product, instead of requiring three, four clicks to get there, we actually made that the first thing that you see when you log in. So that's one very small example of that. But it was all those things. It was knowledge-based articles. It was marketing content. And over time, in-app content. Yeah. That's a great insight. You know, one thing that we talk a lot about at OpenView, and in fact, you and I have talked a lot about in the past, is this idea of product-led growth. What does that mean to you and ultimately mean for Calendly? Again, going back to our value, it's about starting with human, right? So when I'm a buyer, like, what is the ideal experience that I want, right? I would like to try something at my own pace, right? I'd like to try it with no pressure from a salesperson. I'd like it to be as cheap as possible. And that's exactly what product-led growth is. You can do a trial online yourself. You don't have to pay before you actually know this thing works for you and what you're trying to do. You don't have, again, I was a salesperson for a long time, so I think I'm allowed to say this, but you don't want a pesky salesperson bothering you and asking you for money before you even know that the product creates value. So those are all the things that product-led growth is to me. It's really about thinking about when I'm a buyer, what is the ideal experience that I want? And it's replicating that and doing it for your customers. The other thing I think about product-led growth is that it's the great equalizer. I learned this during my time at IBM in the early 2000s, right? So consistently, we would run into these deals where IT departments were buying networking software right off the internet from companies like WhatsApp Gold and SolarWinds. And it fascinated me that this giant behemoth that IBM was, yet these very, very small companies were able to beat IBM. And the reason they were able to beat it is because they were playing a different game. They just lowered the barriers of entry into their product. They made it available online. And what would happen is a lot of IT managers would go use those products. And again, they would get value out of those products before we could turn around and give them a demo three weeks later. And these very, very small companies actually had a fighting chance. It would have been very difficult for them and very capital intensive for them to stand up a sales team and I became obsessed with it. And, you know, it's no coincidence that many years later on, as I thought to build my own software company, I leveraged some of those tactics that I thought were good for David when going up against Goliath. It's great to have the background, obviously, having been in, in the seat of Goliath and watching the Davids at the world sort of pick up their slingshot to go off and, you know, build a better slingshot. And I think you've built an absolute world-class one at Calendly. That's awesome. One thing you mentioned at the beginning, which I really wanted to come back to, was all of the learnings, right, from your prior businesses before starting Calendly, right? And then instead of having happy years and finding reasons to say yes, going through the process of, you know, speaking to 
to folks out in the market and learning and, and trying to find reasons to say no and, and not being able to. But despite that, you know, fairly thoughtful approach, trying to talk yourself out of being a founder and realizing that, no, you had to do it again. What advice would you today give yourself that you frankly probably wouldn't have listened to even then? Yes. I never thought I would say this back in 2013, but I think it's a really good idea for every bootstrap business to raise a little bit of venture capital. In our case, we raised money from OpenView, not because we needed money. The business was profitable by the time we partnered with you. But in scaling the business, Calendly will end up serving millions more people and will end up employing hundreds more people because of our partnership. And that I'm very excited about and very grateful for. So I recommend it to every bootstrap founder that's gotten to scale. Now, I wouldn't have said that six years ago, but I see the benefits of it today. That's awesome. And so when not living, breathing, kind of bleeding Calendly, what do you do to unwind? Yeah, I do a couple of things. I like to travel. I'm known for uh, super short trips. So I'm the kind of guy who would fly to Tokyo for three nights from Atlanta. I don't think I have the fortitude for micro trips. That's really special, right? That you can get into those moments and take it away. Well, look, Tope, thanks so much for joining us on Build. It's been a wonderful conversation and congrats on what you've built at Calendly and, and what you're continuing to build from here. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks for tuning in to the last episode of season six. At the beginning of the year, Ariel Winton, a member of our investment team, will be kicking off the next season with another round of amazing PLG leaders. Make sure to subscribe to Build on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite purveyor of podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Also, while you're there, check out new content daily on our blog. Until next time. <laughs>